Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I think this is just a start of uh, what's going to happen in the future. Biometrics of all types are going to be provided by the patient to us, and it'll be our role now to sort of interpret that. Today, Dr. Narendra Singh, a cardiologist, joins the podcast for this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP, Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Narendra Singh. Dr. Singh is a cardiologist and a clinical assistant professor at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. He is also a clinical assistant professor at the College of Health Professions at Mercer University of Atlanta, as well as the director of clinical research at NCS Cardiology, Johns Creek, Georgia. Dr. Singh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So the first question I always ask my guests is I'm always curious as how they chose the path of medicine. Can you share your story? Well, it's interesting. You know, in high school, it was a long, long time ago. It was the time of Indiana Jones, and I loved history, and I wanted to be a archaeology uh, major, uh, but my guidance counselor said, do I have a plan B? And so I took uh, human biology as uh, uh, a course in grade 12, and I just loved it, and that sent me on my uh, path uh, to medicine. Um, and I fast-tracked it into medicine, and I've loved it since. I had a similar story where I, I come from a long line of teachers, and I thought, oh, I might, when I was in college, I might be a classics professor, and my family disabused me of that, co- that thought <laughs> very quickly, so I focused on the pre-med. Can you describe your practice setting for us? Yeah, so I'm actually a a rare breed now, independent cardiologist uh, in Atlanta. Um, It's just myself and my nurse practitioner. We have two sites. Um, But right from day one, I've been in practice now for over 30 years. I've ran a clinical trials unit. So uh, I enjoy doing clinical research, have done over 150 clinical trials. I uh, also enjoy teaching, you know, so we have students uh, both from... uh, uh, the Medical College of Georgia, and also from Mercer University that come and, uh, and work in our clinic. So it, it makes for a very uh, busy but exciting uh, uh, day, each day. So for the um, non-cardiologist, you know, what are some of the more recent studies you're working on that folks in general in medicine would find interesting? Well, we've just gone through, in fact, uh, um, uh, a series of trials in the cardiometabolic world. I mean, the, the area of type 2 diabetes and obesity uh, in terms of finding therapies that not just improve sugar, not just lose weight, but actually um, uh, improve cardiovascular outcomes. Um, those have been some very exciting trials with excellent outcomes. We're now looking at a few other areas, you know, blood thinners in in cardiology are used extensively. We've uh, developed these newer blood thinners, but they still have a risk of bleeding. So we're constantly developing new ones. We're now working on factor 11 inhibitors. Uh, We also are still trying to understand how to manage um, different components of the the lipid system. So we're involved in a trial that's looking at uh, triglyceride management, another trial that's looking at uh, uh, reducing LP little a, which has been always a challenge to reduce, and still looking at ways to improve uh, people's good cholesterol, that HDL, in a beneficial manner. 
So um, it keeps it exciting. Um, you know, there's no shortage uh, of, uh, of research during COVID. Research also continued. In fact, a lot of focus at that time was on the effects of uh, the coronavirus on, on the heart. And, uh, and we learned a lot about uh, inflammation and, and the heart. It's interesting because I had a guest on just a couple of weeks ago um, who's an infectious disease doc, and we were sort of talking about, you know, prior to vaccination, the virus ran loose in your body. So it could go to your myocardium, it could go, you know, to your nephrons. But now with vaccination, you know, we're probably seeing the virus stay more in sort of the upper respiratory areas. Are you seeing as many complications? No, you're absolutely right. We're seeing a, a lot less in terms of uh, uh, cardiac complications for two different reasons. One, we now you know, recognize that when you get the virus, um, it does two things. It raises uh, um, your CRP, which is the amount of inflammation in your body, mm -hmm. and it raises your D-dimer, which makes your blood thicker. We know to, how to deal with that, so we, we get on top of that quickly so those complications don't arise. And, and you're right that, you know, fortunately, um, the strains that are now present uh, don't seem to affect the heart in the same way that uh, the earlier strains did. And I heard you mention HDL. So I've been in medicine long enough to remember that one of the holy grails was is that we found this group of people in Milan who had these, you know, incredibly high HDLs and had almost no cardiac disease that we could see. And everybody kept thinking that just push the HDLs through the roof. But I did a little research because of a family member who had high HDLs, but then had a cardiac event. That's not necessarily the case. Can you sort of describe what I think is sort of this hockey stick with HDLs? Yeah, so what, what we realize is that from a, a prognostic uh, uh, um, perspective, low HDL increases your risk. High HDL is protective but super high HDL may not necessarily be protective. And you know, it gets more complex that there's just, there's more than just one type of HDL, there's HDL subtypes. And for example, we know that uh, a number of drugs that we tried, you know, uh, last decade, uh, these CTEP inhibitors that right. literally doubled your HDL, but actually provided no value. On the other hand, the HDL that you get from uh, exercising, and the HDL that you actually get from a good glass of wine are actually cardioprotective. And so um, we do um, recommend that you, you do exercise. And if you enjoy a drink, then, then in moderation, it can protect the heart. Oh, that's great. And the other thing that I sort of, when I look at the hot topic in sort of what's coming up in cardiology, and we also do this when we talk to our um, colleagues in, in the respiratory world, is that, you know, technology in particular wearables are becoming something that's, you know, sort of really, especially during the pandemic, came to the fore. What are your sort of experiences with something as simple as, you know, the sort of, you know, the Apple Watch mm -hmm. or other technologies that folks can use at home? Oh, you're absolutely right. This was a, actually a, a, a game changer for us during the pandemic when, when patients were uh, either scared to or our offices were closed and couldn't get uh, to us. Uh, the ability to transmit information like your heart rate, your heart rhythm, now we're getting glucose sensors. You know, uh, all of this technology is, is really uh, been a true game changer. We are identifying, for example, a lot more atrial fibrillation because of that uh, Apple Watch. And I recommend to many of my patients because the big difference between that and many other sensors is that it's not just telling you your heart rate. It, you can actually get that 30-second rhythm strip. And, and that's what I need in order to make a definitive diagnosis. So um, I, I think this is just a start of uh, what's going to happen in the future. Biometrics uh, of all types are going to be provided by, by the patient 
to us and it'll be our role now to sort of interpret that uh, because unfortunately there is a lot of false information, um, you know, a lot of uh, sort of um, interference and things like this that we have to make sure we, we uh, sort out. But uh, overall, I think the future for um, these types of wearables is, is only going to get uh, um, stronger. And so a couple other interesting heart topics that I saw. First of all, there's, there was out of something out of Auckland, the University of Auckland, they had a sort of a bionic pacemaker that was sort of dynamically following the heart. And I know that pacemaker technology is advancing. Your experience with pacemaker technology, do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, so there, there have been a couple of uh, uh, major advancements. I mean, the, the last uh, decade was focused on making sure that the pacemakers were uh, MRI compatible. So many people need an MRI, and in the past, if you had a pacemaker, you couldn't, couldn't have one done. Now every company's pacemakers um, uh, allow you to have an MRI done. But one of the challenges of pacemakers is that, you know, the body's constantly uh, getting different uh, inputs uh, in terms of what its heart rate should be. And right now, most pacemakers only have what's called an accelerometer, a, an activity sensor. Um, but if you get emotionally upset, uh, your heart rate should normally go up. Um, but if you've got a pacemaker, it may not. And so this is where they're developing uh, newer technologies, looking at you know, um, uh, various inputs to the heart and then converting that to a heart rate for the heart. And so that's going to be cool technology. The other thing that they're trying to develop more and more is what we call leadless pacemakers. So you just put a, a probe that you screw into the heart um, but it, and it paces the heart, but there's no actual lead coming back to the generator. Um, the generator is actually in the probe that you've actually attached. So um, uh, early technology has been developed there. Um, it will only continue to improve. It is one of the things wow. I love about cardiology is that literally every year new information comes out. I had a couple of classmates in medical school who went on to be cardiologists and their hobbies also include like tinkering with things, especially the interventional cardiologists. I think they like to tinker with a lot of things. So the other thing that I noticed is just, like everything old is new again sometimes is that the, the pig heart transplant came back into the news. Did you read about that and any thoughts? Yeah, it's certainly not my uh, area of uh, expertise, but one of the things, uh, I mean, it's a good thing for society. We are seeing less motor vehicle accidents because the seatbelts, we're seeing, um, you know, uh, um, less um, uh, young individuals uh, dying. And as a result, uh, heart transplants are, are hard to come by. And as a result, we've had to look for uh, options. And the technology in terms of actually even growing a pig's heart, um, you know, um, uh, independent of, of the animal, um, it, it is able to be done now. And our immunosuppressive technologies are getting better because we've got to find other ways to be able to um, uh, provide um, hearts for those that have, have failed to the point where uh, even a mechanical device isn't sufficient. Right. And then that sort of brings us to the sort of the new frontier of mechanical hearts, which I think, to your point, it, people are constantly tinkering with it. And I think that it um, there was a small study that somebody was looking at regenerative heart therapies and that this sort of mechanical heart technology actually was they're working to see if it can generate actual new heart muscle as well. Have you been following that at all? Yeah, well, they've done it for other tissues, like you literally uh, for individuals who don't have a uterus, you can actually generate an entire uterus. The heart is a little bit more complex uh, in terms of being able to uh, to uh, um, uh, generate. So certainly there, we've never, we haven't gotten to the stage yet where you can actually generate an entire heart to be able to implant. But believe me, um, it's going to happen. I mean, the, the, the sort of work that's going into that is, is truly, uh, truly amazing. 
And I think that to, to your point, those of us who sort of follow epidemiology and who might be part of that aging population in the country, obviously, you know, heart failure, as we live longer and longer from, you know, when we've sort of taken care of other diseases, something's got to wear out. And, and you know, when you sort of look at the statistics, you know, it's it's the heart. Yeah, no, that, that's what we see. I mean, like you said, when you look at populations, you know, I was, I was born in India and at one time uh, for India, it, uh, infectious disease was the number one killer and nobody got to the point where they developed heart disease. Now India leads the world in terms of the amount of diabetes and amount of heart disease that it has because they're surviving the infectious disease, but unfortunately have developed a lot of the bad habits of uh, that we have and, uh, and as a consequence uh, developing heart disease. Interestingly here, as we get better at conquering heart disease, what we're seeing is the neurodegenerative diseases uh, right. uh, you know, b- play a bigger, bigger role because people are now living into their uh, 80s and 90s and, and unfortunately our therapies for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are, are still um, a ways off. Well, Dr. Singh, I, really interesting conversation. I'd like to thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. And that's today's episode of the Special Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. You can send any tips or suggestions to editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Dr. Narendra Singh, and to Owen Cooper, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we'll cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.